Before we get into this episode, we want to acknowledge the eight victims of last week's shooting in Atlanta with a moment of silence. In our last episode, we interrogated the white supremacy roots of anti-Asian violence and asked, what can justice look like for Asian Americans through the abolitionist lens? This episode will be linked in our show notes. We hope you're taking care of yourselves and your loved ones during this time. I'm Sylvia Pong. I'm John Ray Serapia. You're listening to At The Moment by AZ Media. Hi, everyone. It's Sylvia. For this episode, John Ray will be in conversation with our new reporter, Sahil Nisha, to trace the lineage of queer Asian America. Sahil, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, all. I'm Sahil Nisha. They, them, theirs pronouns. I'm a writer, dog walker, and ultimate frisbee player from the Carolinas. Hi, Sahil. It's so great to have you here today. Thanks, Sylvia. So, as some of y'all may know, International Trans Visibility Day is coming up on March 31st. This is a really significant day for the trans community because prior to the creation of this day, the only holiday that centered trans folks was Transgender Day of Remembrance, which was a day to mourn and remember those who we have lost to anti-trans violence. So International Trans Visibility Day is really a day to celebrate the lives that trans folks are currently living right now. Trans Day of Visibility was established by Rachel Crandall Crocker, a white trans woman from Michigan, in 2009. In creating this day of celebration, she cited frustration that the only well-known day centering trans people was the Trans Day of Remembrance which mourns the trans people we've lost each year, but doesn't celebrate the living members of our trans community. Right, and we've been hearing more about Asian Americans in mainstream media, which is mostly linked to the uptick in anti-Asian hate incidents. The media has been focusing not only on the hate incidents, but the ways in which Asian Americans started organizing within the past year. What mainstream media fails to acknowledge is that Asian Americans have been organizing for decades. Specifically, there's been a ton of activism and organizing by queer and trans Asian Americans. So we wanted to take this episode to talk with queer and trans Asian American activists. The work of queer trans activists of color often goes overlooked, but is integral to how our country treats those of us at that very vulnerable intersection. Mm. Two of the most significant figures that come to mind are Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who are driving force behind the Stonewall riot. And a lot of BIPOC queer folks have found and continue to find that these queer inclusive spaces are actually pretty exclusive of BIPOC communities. Right. We want to recognize some of the Asian queer and trans activists from U.S. history. Crystal Jung is a San Francisco-based activist who has co-founded organizations for Asian and Pacific Islanders, including APIQWTC, which is pronounced APIQTSI. Oasis, which is now a part of API Cutesy, and the Red Envelope Giving Circle. In the 1960s, Zhang and her friends successfully petitioned the City College of San Francisco to change the campus dress code so women were allowed to wear pants. In 1978, she spoke out against the Briggs Initiative, a bill that would have fired LGBTQ teachers in public schools across California. And there's also Kiyoshi Kurumiya, one of the world's leading AIDS activists who devoted his life to social justice. He was one of the founders of the Gay Liberation Front in Philadelphia, 
and also served as a delegate to the Black Panther Convention, endorsing the gay liberation struggle. I'm also thinking of Kitty Sui, a writer, actor, poet, and bodybuilder. Her published work includes Words of a Woman Who Breathes Fire, which is the first known book by a Chinese-American lesbian. Her acting work includes Nice Chinese Girls Don't, Framing Lesbian Fashion, and Women of Gold. She was also a founding member of the Asian-American women's performance group Unbound Feet. So with Kitty, Kiyoshi, and Crystal, we see this general moment of community building and activism leading up to and through the 1980s. And this is all as the battle against HIV and AIDS within the queer trans communities really heightens. Right. And we see a lot of the Asian American community coming together, forming alliances with other BIPOC for both their own well-being and also their collective liberation. There's certainly a power to seeing Asian Americans who've made themselves visible throughout our nation's very complicated and violent history. Mm. It's important for kids of every generation to understand what history falls to them and what a sincere representation of Asian Americans looks like. I also think, to consider the other side of it, that there's a certain risk that comes with that visibility. For example, Crystal Jung spoke out against the Briggs Initiative despite the risk that she could lose her job in doing so. Another such risk is this sort of pit of representation. This idea that if Asian Americans are representing ourselves, that we will be more compliant and complicit in sustaining our national project of violence. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, these folks are really just a handful of the deep lineage of queer trans Asian American activists that have been blazing trails for us for so long up to today. You're right. And in keeping with that, I want to introduce you to our first guest. You'll hear from them after this short break. Hey there, John Ray here, co-host of At The Moment. At AZ Media, we strive to uplift our communities and report on the most important issues. To support our work, subscribe to our pod wherever you listen, and please consider donating to our coffee at coffee.com slash azmedia. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot A-Z-I media. Our coffee page will be linked in the show notes as well. Thank y'all for listening. Before the break, we gave y'all a little history behind the International Trans Day of Visibility and took you through some notable queer and trans Asian American activism throughout the years. Now you'll hear from queer trans activist, writer, and both founder and host of the podcast Queering Desi, Priya Aurora. My name is Priya Aurora. My pronouns are they or she. And I'm the host and founder of Queering Desi, which is a podcast that highlights South Asian uh, LGBTQIA folks and talks to them about all their identities, not just gender or sexuality, but also any number of career and personal identities that they may hold as well. As I mentioned, Bria is the host and founder of Queering Desi. She uses it as a way to not only explore queer South Asian culture and history, but also to highlight individuals where those identities meet. But I also wanted to uplift examples in our communities of folks who transcend just their sexuality and gender identities and have intersectional identities and many different ways that they might identify. And so being able to dig deeper into who we are as people rather than how we identify was really important to me in Queering Daisy. There was this pairing of episodes that pre-released where she had the mom of a queer trans teenager on to talk about mothering, and then she had the child on for the next episode, and it was just like tears. I was in tears. Same. And for those who haven't heard of Queering Desi, Check it out ASAP. That's really in line with something Priya mentioned. 
She told me about an organization called Desi Rainbow Parents and Allies, an organization dedicated to building allyship between South Asian parents and their queer and trans kids. Mm, and that's a really important cause. I know a lot of queer trans Asian Americans who have difficult relationships with their parents. So to have that structured space for families to come together, I think that's really incredibly important. Yeah, exactly. It's important that parents and communities at large engage in these conversations that will normalize queerness and trans identity, something that will hopefully permeate out of the work that Desi Rainbow Parents and Allies is doing. Right. Normalizing queerness is really, really important. Priya shared a lot of great takes with us on Asian American representation in the media. You rarely ever see Asian folks as any kind of sexual, you know, they're always the kind of they're the side characters or they're the comedic or they're the, you know, they're minimized in the side to a lead character. And so seeing them as leads is one thing, but also seeing them as, as sexual beings or people with desires is really key. Seeing Asians and South Asians as desirable or sexual would have helped me grasp or at least critically consider my identity outside of whiteness sooner. I, th- I think so for me too. And it's important work to shift the consciousness of Asian viewers away from that Orientalist perspective that controls the Asian body and towards one where Asian people genuinely have agency over their own sexual and gender expression. I mean, I can't even think of any examples that I had growing up where Asian people in media representation had a genuine agency over how they express their sexual or gender expression, right? I think it's the same for me. I think part of why we're having trouble thinking of examples is this historical desexing of Asian men and the simultaneous hypersexualization of Asian women. Right. And this definitely isn't new. I mean, Asian women have been hypersexualized and stripped of their agency under the white gaze for years. One of the earliest, most quintessential examples that I could think of is that infamous tragedy turned opera Madame Butterfly, mm. which was originally written by Jean Luther Long. Fast forward to today, where white Hollywood producers and writers are still the dominated power, and Asian women continue to be hypersexualized. So the troubles in representation in these contexts run pretty deep. Right. Representation is such a buzzword in the Asian American community. But that's probably because only recently have we started to see favorable and more self-representations of Asian Americans. Podcasters like Bria are doing the work to show the many ways South Asians can and do exist in the U.S., In more traditional media platforms, we're seeing more Asian Americans telling their own stories, actively shaping our on-screen presence. This year in particular was a big year for Asians in the film industry. Chloe Zhao was the first woman of color ever to be nominated for Best Director in the Oscars' 93 years. And if she wins the Oscar, she'll only be the second woman in history to ever win in this category. She actually just won the Golden Globe for Best Director Motion Picture and was the first Asian woman to ever win this award. Also, Nomadland is so good and y'all should check it out. It's really exciting that Chloe is breaking this ground, but I think it says a lot about the Academy that it's taken this long. Exactly. I mean, Stephen Young is the first Asian American to ever be nominated for Best Actor, so just let that sink in. Exactly. Riz Ahmed is also the first Muslim to ever be nominated in the same category, so it's the first time that there are two nominees of Asian descent in the Best Actor category. These are some big moves for the Asian American community for sure. But Priya and I also talk specifically about how South Asian queer and trans folks have been blazing their own trail in media. But I also think for South Asians, 
folks that have kind of come out in the most recent years have kind of opened that door. So we see more South Asian queer and trans folks, folks that are open about their identities, but you see them in Hollywood and on screen as not just that. They're not tokenized and they're not said to be, okay, you're just that, you know, you're just like the queer guy and you're you're going to be the funny, you know, like offhand. You see a shift in that kind of representation. And it's because not only did South Asian folks and Asian folks before that open the door a little bit, but because they had the bravery to say, you know, on the heels of someone like Laverne Cox or on the heels of folks like Mindy Kaling, Naziz Ansari, you know, opening the door of South Asian representation, we can then take it a step further and be more open about who we are off screen and, and allowing audiences to see us for who we are. Although there's still work to be done to sincerely represent queer and trans South Asian and Asian folks broadly in mainstream media, Bria talked about how representation of queer and trans Asian Americans in media is important, but also spoke to the power of connecting our queer and trans identities to our motherlands. Linking to our histories and linking to our our motherlands and our mythologies can help with that. So in South Asia, you know, if you think about the Hindu mythology, right, you you have examples of gender bending or icons that kind of went from one gender to another or the fluidity of that, or you see depictions of homosexual love or homosexual sex. And I think those examples help kind of break down the idea that this is kind of a new age thing. And coming back to language, those representations matter, right? Because you want to have an example of that. Bria gets at a really important point. This idea that not only is representation important, but so is who gets to make that representation. It's the difference between representation and self-representation. The difference between a sincere representation and a tokenizing representation. Right. It's a matter of agency. And a powerful place for us to understand representative agency is to consider the figures that exist in our respective pre-colonial cultures. I agree. But despite these figures existing across Asian mythologies, some folks in the Asian communities continue to stigmatize the LGBTQ plus community. The loss of language, for, especially for queer and trans folks, but especially in Asian and South Asian communities, it can mean that there's a perception of gender and sexuality as being external or ex- as being Western. And so especially if you don't have language for those things, except in Western languages, it can exacerbate the idea that this is you know, brought on by the West or this is a new age kind of thing. I love this point Bria brings up about the function of Western language in us identifying ourselves. When we don't have the language to talk about queer and trans identity to, let's say, family members, Bria emphasizes the importance for LGBTQ folks to have a community to turn to. A lot of these South Asian community organizations around the U.S. have a really deep history. Salga just a couple years ago celebrated 25 years of existence, right? And so they were developed in the 90s when there were not a lot of Asian or South Asian spaces for queer and trans folks. And I think for Salga especially, like that deep history um, was something that was really meaningful for me to know that uh, folks before us kind of laid the path. Every generation might think they're the first to kind of fight a fight, but we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, who who blazed those paths and who helped find community when, you know, social media and, and even like just organizing by mail or by phone. So So we stand on their shoulders and I think like that History in our communities is also really important. Being able to talk about all of these things, representation, 
the language we use to identify ourselves, topics that seem normal to discuss today, wouldn't be possible without the work of our queer elders. Right. Like Bria said before, we're standing on the shoulders of the giants who fought and, in many cases, are still fighting to establish and maintain legal protections for our queer and trans community. Having the ability to talk about or explore our identity is a privilege that our elders secured for us. And we need to acknowledge that queer and trans activists, particularly queer activists of color, have historically been erased despite contributing so much to the queer trans community. They organized marches and protests, started riots, and provided mutual aid for homeless queer youth. Without them, who knows where our generation of queer and trans folks would be. Exactly. So we're going to dig into the legacies of our queer and trans elders with our next guest after this break. Howdy, everyone. I'm Sahil Nisha. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm a reporter here at AZ Media. If you'd like to stay up to date with At The Moment, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our newsletter at az.media. That's azi.media. And follow us on Insta and Twitter at azi.media. If there's a story you think we should cover, please send me an email at sahil at az.media. That's S-A-H-I-L at azi.media. Thank you for listening. We wanted to speak to someone who has championed some of the legislative and public policy work that has provided the queer and trans community with, at the very least, some stable ground to stand on. We had the honor of speaking to Pauline Park. My name is Pauline Park. I am an activist, LGBT activist in Palestine Solidarity. I live in Jackson Heights in Western Queens. Pauline was born in Korea and adopted by a Christian fundamentalist European-American family. She grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which, as you can guess, was all white. When I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, there was simply no such thing as being openly gay, let alone being openly trans, in school. None of the infrastructure, GSAs, gay-straight alliances that fortunately been popping up all over the place, existed back then. There was no infrastructure and no support. So I think growing up in the 60s and 70s as a queer Korean adoptee in a predominantly white and totally heteronormative environment was definitely a challenge. But in some ways, those challenges are what made me who I am today. I think Pauline brings up a really important point about the challenges she faced. And I have a lot of respect for the work she's done so that future generations of queer and trans folks don't have to necessarily face those same challenges. She broke down her activism for me, starting with her earlier work in the mid-90s. I co-founded several different organizations, and the two that I'm most closely associated with are NIAGRA, the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy, which I co-founded in June 1998, and Queen's Pride House, which is the Center for LGBT People in Queens, which I co-founded in January 1997. NIAGRA was founded because there was no transgender advocacy organization in the city or the state back in 1998. I know that's kind of hard to believe now with the plethora of different advocacy organizations and projects and efforts, but back in 1998, the only thing on the scene was social service providers 
there was no advocacy organization specifically by and for transgendered people. Back then, there weren't really any advocacy organizations specifically by and for transgendered people. So the leading statewide LGBT organization at the time was called the Empire State Pride Agenda, or ESPA. The formation of Niagara in 1998 ultimately prompted ESPA to revise its mission to include trans people. A few years later came what Pauline considers to be the most historic victory for the transgender community in New York at the time. It was the enactment of the transgender rights law enacted by the city council in April 2002. Um, But we also played an instrumental role in getting the state legislature to enact a transgender inclusive Dignity for All Students Act. And it was the first legislation introduced into the New York State Legislature to include gender identity and expression. It's important to note that before the introduction of the definition of gender in that bill, it was not transgender inclusive. And so that was a very significant moment in the history of the community, I think. Pauline also spoke about the Queen's Pride House, an LGBTQ community center, where Pauline still serves as the executive director. Pauline explained that New York City was, and still is, very Manhattan-centric, which is true, and it left the outer boroughs without LGBTQ community centers. So, in 1997, the Queen's Pride House was established, providing health information, support groups, access to legal services, and so much more. And there was actually another org that Pauline helped co-found, which is sadly no longer in operation. But during its years of activity, it did a lot for the queer Korean community in the city. Although this organization is inactive now, Pauline co-founded IBAN, I-B-A-N, slash Queer Koreans of New York. It was the first organization specifically for LGBT queer Koreans, Korean Americans, Korean adoptees in New York during its three years of existence, really managed to provide a safe space and a home for queer Koreans uh, here in New York. Uh, The membership was actually uh, quite diverse, really. It included uh, recent Korean immigrants, international students, uh, second and third generation Korean Americans who are primarily English speaking, uh, Korean uh, adoptees, and men, women, trans people, people who were primarily Korean speaking, people who were primarily English speaking, people who were bilingual. And so it was a really special organization. We, we published a newsletter, uh, which I edited, which was uh, bilingual, was in both English and Korean. And we had a number of really nice events that brought people together in community. The late 90s were actually a golden age for queer Korean organizations in this country. Uh, Sadly, many of them have since folded, but there were organizations in Chicago, LA, San Francisco, and elsewhere specifically devoted to queer Koreans. It's a very specific group of people, but one has to understand that especially with recent Korean immigrants who are primarily Korean speaking, to have a space that is queer and Korean 
was a really novel experience for them and really uh, empowering and affirming experience for them. And it was also a way for Korean Americans and Korean adoptees to kind of reconnect with their Koreanness, their Korean heritage, as it were, uh, in an LGBT queer context. In addition to her activism, Pauline spent a lot of her youth studying. She holds a PhD in political science from the University of Illinois. During her studies there, she came across the work of philosopher, historian, and writer Michel Foucault. His writing focused largely on criminality, power, and sexuality. Two of his most significant texts are Discipline and Punish and The History of Sexuality. It was Foucault's work that encouraged Pauline to really interrogate who she was. I think one thing that I realized was that my transgender identity, though of course in many ways very different from my identity as a Korean adoptee, was parallel in a number of important respects. But reading Michel Foucault really rocked my world, as it were. So reading Foucault, we read Discipline and Punish, among other works. Panopticon chapter was really a revelation. We live in such a panopticonal world. Uh, But Foucault helped me rethink uh, identity. It made me realize that I'd been operating under... Uh, through a binary, both in terms of gender identity and in terms of racial or ethnic identity. I realized that I'd been thinking in terms of gender as real, in terms of real woman versus fake woman, and in terms of uh, racial, ethnic identity, national identity as real Korean versus fake Korean, but that these were binary oppositions were, in fact, uh, false dichotomies. That as a trans woman, that I could claim the identity of woman while recognizing that my male embodiment would necessarily make me somewhat different in a number of respects from those who are assigned female at birth. And similarly, I realized that there was a parallel with my thinking about my identity as a Korean adoptee, that I could claim Korean identity in some sense as a Korean adoptee, even one who grew up in a European-American family and household and didn't speak Korean, that my experiences were different, but no less valid or legitimate than those of Koreans growing up in Korea, or Korean Americans growing up in a uh, Korean household in the US. And so when I thought this through, this would have been back in 1994, uh, (laughs) at the ripe old age of 33, I suddenly realized that I could think outside the box or those boxes, those binary oppositions of gender and race and nationality in ways that would allow me to actualize my own identity or identities and overcome the multiple oppressions under which I'd labored for so many years. 
Pauline had so many great points, but I loved hearing what she said here specifically. Same, especially the notion of multiple, layered, or nested oppressions. It really has me thinking about the fluidity of not just gender and sexuality, but of things we might historically see as more rigid, like nationality, borders, citizenship, and even culture. Yeah, and that raises a good question. Like, how do we relate to our nationality, ethnicity, and the self? A lot of things that Pauline said resonated so much with me that we couldn't even include it all in this episode. Catch our socials to see more excerpts from Saho's conversation with her, and we'll be right back after this break. This story is brought to you by AZ Media. We are a team of journalists, activists, and creators dedicated to providing a platform to stories and people that have been historically underrepresented and marginalized. From our editorial team who works endlessly to source and research stories, to our in-house editors who make the stories come to life. We aim to bring quality journalism and storytelling of Asian America. To support our mission, subscribe to At The Moment wherever you listen, and be sure to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, y'all, for listening. So, Saha, we just heard about your really great conversation with Pauline. What are, like, your first thoughts coming out of that interview? That it seemed like Pauline was really, like, a a bulwark figure in queer trans Asian American activism. Yeah, absolutely. I think that she has a lot of rich insights to offer us from the decades that she spent doing a lot of uh, activist work for the queer trans Asian community here. And I definitely felt like we didn't have enough time to really get everything that she could have said. Yeah. So she talked about numerous issues. Like, what would you say is like something interesting that you didn't know that Pauline had worked on prior? Her work to get the Dignity for All Students Act passed in the New Mm. York State that, among other protections, guarantees protections for queer and trans kids in the New York school systems. Mm. I thought that was particularly fascinating. Something else from her background that she shared with us was the solidarity work that she's done for Palestine. Mm-hmm. And it just has me thinking about, you know, how a lot of these issues, including like Palestinian liberation and queer liberation, how all these issues are actually interconnected. Right. But she even mentioned like bullying, which it actually makes sense when you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of childhood trauma for queer trans kids starts there right but to like have an after-school program that probably helps out so many kids that are queer and trans having them be at the forefront of that kind of effort i thought that was also really interesting like you said yeah absolutely and i think that her work on bullying indicates you know just the importance of having inter-issue sort of solidarity awareness and approaching issues with an intersectional lens because the Dignity for All Students Act, which engages the issue of bullying queer and trans youth, also protects a lot of other students. I guess like when I'm thinking about what this episode means, it's really dedicated to like queer trans Asian Americans who want to see others in the activist field, Mm -hmm. knowing like the histories of these really amazing people that have been doing such incredible work like what that means for us as queer trans, politically engaged, some might say activists, what it means to know that we're standing on the shoulders of people that have been doing work in times when there is no representation in the activist work. Sure. I think Pauline serves a very inspirational function for me as a queer and trans youth with like Asian lineage in the US. 
And I also really enjoyed my conversation with Bria, who's doing similar work in, you know, platforming and representing South Asian queer stories in the US. And that's something that she spoke to, right? We have to be privy and wary of the giants on whose shoulders we stand. Mm. And I think Pauline and Bria are both, for me, such characters. Right. We're here, we're, we're making a podcast, so we definitely are standing on the shoulders of, of Priya, as you say. <laughs> and I would echo that, to, to know that like the really important legislative work that Pauline does kind of set the stage for our ability to think about what it means for representation and popular media to be a little bit more commonplace than it was a while ago. To know that like that all stands on this like legislative foundation that Pauline really set forth for us is like really important. And I hope that like for other queer trans Asian Americans that are listening, that they see that that history and feel validated by it too. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that it's important for us to see, you know, those kinds of figures in our past, not just in a cultural sense of, you know, in my case, looking back to India and seeing what sort of representation and activism has been going on there around my sexual and gender identity but also what's been happening here in the unique space of being both Asian and in the U.S. Specifically having that lineage compared to seeking a lineage placed in like our respective motherlands. Part of this episode was actually inspired by someone that was writing about an article about that like exact tension what it means for Asian Americans, queer trans Asian Americans specifically, to seek a lineage and a little bit more of a foundation with their homeland in terms of representation of queer trans figures. Sarah New's article in Asian American Writers Workshop, which is a really great organization in New York City, Sarah New's article talks about pre-colonial queer language and mythology and actually had Pauline Park on that article. Mm -hmm. Kind of to get into a little bit of what it means to find like queer figures and ancestral mythology in in Asian cultures, what was Priya's insight on Hindu mythology when you had your interview with her? Priya spoke a little bit about tracing back through Hindu mythology and how queerness might have been represented or otherwise like engaged in some of those like foundational texts. She spoke a little bit about how there are deities or characters in these religious and mythological texts that engage in various performances of homosexuality or even cross-dressing and gender bending. And Bria even spoke to this about just how significant it is for kids of these cultures, in in our case, uh, from like a Hindu background, to see such representations at a foundational level, right? Like these mythos undergird our cultures as they exist today and just how key it is to see that we aren't some kind of new concept right you know being queer being trans it's not a new thing ushered in with modernism it's something that existed before and it's a matter of rediscovering it right for me i was extremely interested in the idea that these mythological figures existed pre-colonially Mm-hmm. I, I'm speaking to the Filipino indigenous culture a little bit right now, that there was like a clear standing in like pre-colonial Filipino society where like these 
trans, homosexual, ancestral figures, gods existed. And it was like all in really respectful notions. When I was digging into my research a little bit, because honestly, I've been obsessing, there is like one god specifically in mythology who I thought was really interesting because he comes from a Visayan background. Like, so where I'm from the Philippines, I'm from the Visayas, which is like this like mountainous area in central Philippines. Mm-hmm. His name is uh, Libulan. They call him the patron god of homosexuality. And he is a moon god that actually was attracted the god of death, Sirapa, who saw the moon gods and like fell in love with all of them, but then specifically Libulan. And together they got married and they lived on this one mountain that I actually like I drank coffee on the last time I went to the Philippines. So it was like, it was really cool to like learn about this, to know that like there's an entire oral history that existed pre-colonially and continues to exist. Mm -hmm. So like I know that myths are a reflection of the people who believe in them. And like, because it's oral history, they're never always verifiable figures, but in the case of queer trans asian american youth and adults it's more than validating i think it's like validating like an existence beyond the way the world has been set up today to speak a little bit about you know your idea of like verifiability of these um figures in our mythologies i do want to challenge that a little bit because especially in an oral oral lineage sense the culture is as fluid as speech, right? So it's a matter of not just mm. preserving a culture that once existed through oral traditions, but also recognizing how, as you said, those cultures kind of shift, right? The myths um, reflect the culture mm. that they um, speak to or come from. I think I think that's actually a really fascinating thing to explore. The idea that as our oral histories develop, as as we as a people. Um, in how, whatever community sense you might think of it, develops, so do our legends, our myths, our oral histories. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing to really like just contemplate while queerness like did exist in our pre-colonial cultures and effectively therefore was colonized out of us almost, that it's just as important to consider what our culture looks like now uh, and how we as you know queer and trans people of that culture are inherently and already sort of queering a culture that doesn't even want us necessarily i agree 100 percent. and like thinking about the people that we brought on this show like what are ways in which like you see them queering our own culture i mean beyond like creating the podcast space in terms of um, priya's example like what other ways do you see us queering our own cultures Sure. I think Bria spoke to this really well about queering Desi and the importance of not just focusing on the fact that her guests are both queer and Desi, but they're queer, they are Desi, they are also so much more, right? And recognizing just how rich that space is, um, especially as, you know, queer people in a diaspora, right? We're products of multiple different and at times even conflicting cultures, right? There are definitely dynamics of colonialism and militarism that would that complicate my relationship to being, you know, of the U.S. and of India. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of uh, people in the U.S. that are from that are in a diasporic position. And I think something that actually speaks to that. I recently read a book. It's called Unruly Immigrants 
It's really fascinating. It takes a close look at a few different South Asian immigrant organizations in the U.S., a few of which are focused on South Asian queer community building and culture building. These South Asian queer organizations have, or were for a while, excluded from the India Day Parade in New York. The India Day Parade is a parade that takes place in Manhattan and celebrates India's independence from British colonial rule. But the exclusion of these South Asian queer orgs from this particular parade sort of indicates that the celebration of India's independence is limited to those who might, who, who would fit a certain expectation of what an Indian is supposed to look or act like, right? In this case, it's this idea that you can only celebrate India's independence if you aren't queer. I think it's important for us to, you know, actively queer our own culture. You know, this idea of challenging, challenging that, challenging um, queer South Asians' exclusion from such a parade or such an event. You know, it shouldn't be having to choose between whether or not I'm Indian or whether or not I'm, you know, queer and trans. It's the fact that I am both. So I just spoke a little bit about how, you know, it's not that I'm either Indian or queer and trans. It's that I am, in fact, both, right? I'm literally right here. Right. So d- how, how do you sort of feel about that? And how, how might you consider that, you know, in terms of your own identity? Mm. I feel like I haven't had enough of like <laughs> an identity revelation to, to really think about that. This, this doesn't have to be in this like, you know, immense like cultural sense of like, you know, me identifying with all of India. It's simply the fact that mm-hmm. like, I mean, I am Indian, right? And it could be at the level of like family, at the level of like mm-hmm. a religious space. And I think more than anything, it's key to remember that culture at the level of the self, at the level of our like individual selves, mm. is constantly in flux, I think. That it's simultaneously informed and complicated by my sexuality, my gender, my ethnicity, my nationality, right? And the fact that all mm. of these are held in attention to come to this point that I am, that I exist. But as one of those things changes or many of those things change right in the sense that you know there's a lot of fluid identities and a lot of these things are in in independently in flux as well as in flux because of one another that there really is no you know singular way to be in my case to be indian right it's a matter of engaging with my cultural self and connecting it to myself in a larger you know almost daunting way I think one way that I think about that too, for me individually, is that like, I I feel like I came into my queer identity as I like started to like speak more to like my my father and like my family and and like my native language. Um, not because like I am expressing to them like my queerness, but because like I just wanted to become more individually like who I am, mm-hmm. and I wanted to reunite those two identities. Once I realized that I didn't have to operate under how I have been operating since I was born and and just been living in the USA, you know, <laughs> that I could like reclaim a lot of that in ways that aren't necessarily standard, like learning a language. 
doesn't mean just learning a language it means reclaiming a part of you that has been taken away by like so much like terrible history you know right and that embracing your queerness is another way of of doing that as well Mm -hmm. that discovery doesn't need to happen separately it could happen together i think that it's actually important and almost integral for that sort of you know journey of self-discovery to happen together to as you said right that your journey towards Mm. like your filipino identity as well as your journey towards your sexuality you know it's it's i think it's that much richer and develops your individual identity more when you consider how they inform one another well sahil thank you so much for your time and for sharing this conversation with me and if y'all want to check out more of paulina priya's work we've linked their websites socials and other links to their articles and their work that we mentioned during this episode all in the show notes yeah thanks for taking the time john ray this was great and that's a wrap you can follow us on twitter and instagram at azi.media our team at az media is a volunteer-run independent journalism team to continue doing this work we need to take occasional breaks to recharge so we'll be taking a month-long break and we'll see y'all back in May for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. In the meantime, please consider donating to our coffee at coffee.com slash azmedia. This episode was produced by Cynthia Leal, Blake Luke Merwin, and Stacey Wong. Edited by Stacey Wong. Story research and reporting by Sahil Nisha, John Ray Serapio, Sylvia Pong, Alina Panik, Cynthia Leo, and Stacey Wong. Our music is by Satoru Ono, cover art by Susu Schrauber, and special thanks to Tiffany Huang, Navita Tanetti, Alice Liu, and Sabine Shawani. And I'm your host, Sylvia Pong. And I'm Jeremy Serapio. Thank y'all for listening and supporting us. See you soon. Bye, y'all.